Hi, I am Puneet Kurana with my very good friend Manish Thawar and together we bring you Stoic podcast series. This series is started as an initiative by stoicinvesting.com to bring the best minds of investing to teach their wisdom irrespective of their investment style or philosophy. Learn the various viewpoints, choose the nuggets and then develop or enhance your own investment style. Welcome guys. This is Puneet Khurana, your host for Stoic Investing Podcast. Now to the investing audience, Guy Spear, the CIO of Equa Marine Funds, needs no introduction. From meeting Warren Buffett accidentally, by attending a class just because he had a hots for a girl, to spending upward of $300,000 to have lunch with him, and then submerging himself and his life in learning the wisdom. He is a fun guy to talk to, and a wise gentleman to learn from. I had a great time recording this podcast, but not for usual investing lessons, but some deep and very interesting life lessons too. I also welcome Krishna to the Stoic Podcast team, and I enjoyed having him as my co-host during this podcast. With that introduction, let's listen to Guy Spear. First of all, Guy, uh, it was great to meet you at the Berkshire meeting this year, and you and Monish, and uh, thanks for sending me the copy of your book also. So it was a fabulous experience reading that book. Um, it was unique in its writing and mesmerizingly authentic in its tone. So I'm thankful for that, and I'm very thankful that you took the time today to discuss your investment insights with us. Uh, welcome to Stoic Podcast. Uh, well, I, I'm just I'm just grateful that there are there are people who think I know something more than they do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, I think large amount of our audience will agree to that. <laughs> Hi, guy. Uh, it's just been almost uh, one year I met you, and uh, that particular meeting has really had a great impression on me, my thinking as well as my uh, investment philosophy as well. And uh, uh, it's great to meet you back in podcast. And uh, uh, thanks, thanks a lot for being here. It's a pleasure. I, what I would tell you is, in 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 all seriousness. Uh, I, I'm not trying to be falsely modest. I think that um, I'm just a fellow student. You know, we're all students of the same material. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe I'm a little further down the road in some things than others. But, but I'm also a student in a certain way. And, and I'm far closer. You know, if we, look at, if we look at people like Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett, you know, I'm, you're on a path. Your listeners are on a path. I'm on a path to uh, gaining more of that wisdom, but we're all in. And by the way, what I've realized is that Warren and Charlie uh, are also on that path. It's just that they are further down the path, but but they kind of, we're all fellow students of the same thing, actually. So, you know, if this was a, if this was a classroom, uh, you know, it's better to think of us, uh, not me in a big lecture hall, me down at the front, but all of us sitting around a seminar table discussing things that we're all interested in. I completely agree. Uh, we are a student of something which is uh, which has a lifelong, um, well, there is no shelf life to it. We're all students of the same thing. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and I would tell you that I think that the people who approach um, Warren and Charlie in that spirit get a much better reception they're very quick to recognize a fellow student of the same things. And, um, and you know, it's, it's worth saying that as a, the, the other point about calling myself a student is that 
you know, it, it, it gives me the space to, to make mistakes. And, uh, uh, I, th I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm surprised by having published the book is now there are some people who think that I have all the answers or they think that I know what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, maybe like, like the juggler, you know, we all start off and we learn to juggle two balls and then maybe we learn to juggle three balls. And, um, and we're so impressed with a guy who can juggle four balls. But the guy who can juggle four balls is not, you know, he hasn't yet learned to juggle eight or 10 or 12 like some people can. Yeah, so, I mean, all I think all we seek is uh, that next level of improvement, uh, you know, from uh, people like you. And then probably you look the same from people like Charlie and Warren. And, um, well, I hope we are able to do that. You know, I think that if you if you think about one set of things for a very long time you don't even have to be that smart eventually you're going to end up being better about thinking about that set of things than anybody else and so part of what we're all doing is we're applying ourselves to a certain set of problems or, or a certain way of looking at the world and we're trying to get better at it you know and so in a certain sense what is value investing value investing is a process by which people who are more thoughtful about the world uh, gain gain some uh, gain some money and perhaps a better life of people who are less thoughtful about the world and think about the world differently. But I, I would tell you that in that process, uh, there are many setbacks. I mean, I've, I in the last two years have experienced a substantial setback uh, that I don't think is um, I, I don't think it it ends my career. But but it's not a smooth path. <laughs> the path is a is a is many many ups you know we want more ups than downs but but you know anybody who thinks that they're going to avoid the downs is you know is living in a different reality to the one that i'm living in <laughs> absolutely agree guys uh let's you know i mean your story is uh, well known now because of your book and there are many interviews you have given over a period of time and you know i would urge the listeners to certainly go through your book it was it was just brilliant and, you know, whoever you say that people think you have all the answers, I think they haven't read your book and you have been amazingly uh, honest in your book about a lot of things. So, um, and the highlight of your career obviously has been the lunch with Buffett, which which uh, I think people are not tired of asking you again and again. And, I, and you can ask me again as well. I have no problem with that. No bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll ask you a different question on that. But um, can you briefly tell me, a bit about your background and you know when did your romance with investing begin um and how did the lunch with buffett fit in that story of your investment career yeah uh, happy to do that um you know i uh did not i i you know warren buffett bought his first stock when he was 11 i think i bought my first stock when i was 27 so slightly different range and um the first stock I ever heard about, I, I'm quite certain, I mean, our memories always trick us, but I'm quite certain I was sitting next to my father right. uh, in Tehran, in Tehran, Iran, uh, where he had a job working for a German multinational, and um, he had made some money and he had opened a brokerage account with Merrill Lynch. So he would pick up the International Herald Tribune, which is one of the newspapers you could get probably a week late, and he would be driving and he'd be asking me to look up stock prices. And I, I just seem to remember that he had shares of IBM, so I remember looking up uh, the stock price of IBM. But, you know, and then the thing for me is that I became 
Uh, I went and studied economics at university, and I was utterly convinced of the efficient market theory. So there was no point in um, in trying to find bargains in the stock market because, as, I, as far as I was concerned, they didn't exist. To the extent that my first interaction with Warren Buffett at Harvard Business School, you know, I, I had no interest in him. I, I thought some guy who's going to make money by um, finding bargains in the stock market. I mean, I just I just didn't buy it. In fact. The only reason why I was there was that I was I had the hops for some girl who wanted to attend a lecture, and that was the only way I could get to speak to her. So it was only after business after business school and in my first job as an investment banker <laughs> that I came across the intelligent investor, and only at that point, once I'd kind of hit a career low, that I opened my mind up, or, or Ben Graham's book and Warren Buffett's introduction opened my mind up, and. Well, you know, one thing that comes up for me now that as I as I remember that story is that and, and it, it I feel it's it's something that's really relevant given the American election that just happened is that so many times uh, the, the map is not the territory. So I had a map of the way the world works and the map was that markets are efficient. And so I saw everything as, as, as if it was the map, and the reality was something different. But I didn't see the reality because I was so convinced of the map that I had in my hand. Uh, and um, I think that so many times we have, a, we have a map that we think is reality. We think it's the territory. It's not. It's just some drawing of what, we th of what somebody thinks is going on, and it's not actually the truth. And... Um, Knowing that we hold a map in our hands is very important because I think that that opens us to new possibilities. So, uh, you know, in the American elections, there I have no idea what kind of President Donald Trump will be. And uh, sorry to dry, dive into politics, but uh, I think that many people are reacting very badly to his president, to, to, to the prospect of him being president. But But they're looking at a map of who he is. They're not looking at what he will actually do. And, uh, and, and that is, that, that it's never good to do that, whether, whether in politics or in voting or investing or in career choices. So I needed to have a far more open mind about the way the world worked. And I had a very, very closed mind, which was opened for me by the intelligent investor at age 27. Wow. Before I go to the next question, you just mentioned uh, Donald Trump. And even though that was not the part of my question list, uh, let me just uh, ask you that. Um, you know, Warren has been overly critical and in his Berkshire meeting also, he was pretty critical on the Trump as a presidential candidate. Do you have a view on that? What's the reason why taking a political side was a good call for Warren? You know, so one, so first of all, I, I now realize that the portrait of Warren, of uh, Donald Trump that I have is very much influenced by the media. And so and it's very much influenced. It's like a map. Again, it's, it's, it's the media have painted him in a certain way. And I've spent the last two weeks asking myself, is he actually that way? Or maybe that is just a picture that has been painted in my mind. So I approach judgments as to how Donald Trump will be as president with, with a lot of um, uh, awareness that I, I may just have the wrong idea of who he is. But the idea that I have of who he is, I think, is the idea that that uh, Warren has of who he is, which is somebody who's 
you know, very narcissistic and very egotistical and very centered on himself. Uh, and, um, the, you know, I think that the basic idea that uh, Warren Buffett has and I had in the approach to the election was that it's, it's very hard to make good decisions about anything and to be a leader if you make everything about you. And um, uh, in a certain way, I think that the kind of leadership that we need of the world of people who almost like disappear, it's, it's sort of people who make it, make it not about them. They make it about uh, and, and they look, they, they make themselves in a situation that they listen and they see what is going on elsewhere around them instead of making themselves the center of attention such that they can't see what's going on. So I think that that at its core was uh, uh, Warren Buffett's critique. I think that, you know, uh, so, but, so I agree with Warren Buffett on that. I think that, um, you know, I have to accept and understand that there are things that I don't know and that I don't see. Um, there were, there were many, many Americans who saw Donald Trump very, very differently. And I want to, I want to have the humility to try and see things their way. To, and, and to not just try, but to genuinely sort of wipe the slate clean. The election was the election. Now we have a new person in the White House starting quite soon. Uh, start with a fresh slate. Put all of those things aside and find out who he will actually be uh, in the White House. Um, and for that, we have very, very little evidence yet as to how he will be. And so I intend to keep an open mind. I think when I look at Warren Buffett, I think that, you know, he has, he has his own views and his own political opinions that he doesn't, he's, he's happy to express them. And it's part of, uh, being in a democracy and freedom of expression and speech to choose a candidate that you want to vote for that you think will be the better president. But I saw an interview that he gave after the election. And I mean, he will be a loyal American citizen. He said very clearly that if he was invited by Donald Trump to the White House, uh, or he was asked a question by Donald Trump as president, he would answer it and as an American citizen out of a sense of uh, duty, and he would answer it and try and help the president as enthusiastically as he can. And I don't, you know, uh, I think that I believe that the American Constitution is strong enough to withstand even somebody who turns out to be not a good president but it's also possible, and I just want to be open to that, and in spite of my concerns about his personality uh, and the way he is in the world, that he might end up, in spite of all of that, being a good president, because it might be that that, that somebody like that is what America needs right now. So, um, you know, it's a complex reality at the end of the day, and I think that uh, it is very popular to express dismay at Donald Trump. So a lot of people are doing it, but, but, and, and, you know, those people may be right. It may be a terrible presidency, but it might not be, you know, and I, and I have to, in the same way that there were many people who did not vote for Barack Obama, but they, they had to help him succeed in his leadership of the free world. Uh, we now have to help Donald Trump to do it. <laughs> Offers that. <laughs> sure, sure. And I mean, uh, why speculate anyways? So uh, let's hope for the best there. Uh, Krishna has a question for you. Yeah, hi, guy. Uh, this is a follow-up question with your lunch uh, with Warren Buffett. So 
Okay, so uh, as you said, uh, uh, it costed around uh, $650,000 for the uh, launch and it was a bit between you and Munish and individually somewhere at around, around $325K. So, and to our Indian viewers, it costed, uh, it's uh, approximately around 4 crore, four crore rupees <laughs> and that's just a very significant amount of money. And what was your thought process uh, when you are writing that check to that uh, uh, lunch? And uh, and at the end of the day, after eight years, uh, uh, was that a multi-bagger for you? <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's an enormous amount of money. There's no question about that. So I, I would tell you just, just on the day after uh, we were, um, we heard that we were the winning bidders. Uh, there was, I, I would tell you, I, I, there was a sense of elation. Uh, there was, the, the, there was a sense of like, holy, holy moly, I'm actually about to wire this money, which, which I went, I went and did. And the funny thing is, um, you know, I had at that point met, uh, Monish Pabrai about three or four times in my life. It's not like we really became friends around that lunch. And, I didn't want to talk, call him or talk to anybody else before I'd wired the money because I didn't want to look like I was a deadbeat. So I was like, there was elation. There was like, holy moly, I'm about to wire this money. And then I went and wired the money, made sure it had arrived. And then I called Monish up uh, to to talk about it. Um, so uh, those were, were my feelings uh, on the actual day. I, I would tell you that... Uh, I think that um, it don't ask me why it is and how it happens, but uh, Monish Pabrai has a very, very unique and special mind that will take the same set of facts, the same set of circumstances and see it, turn it upside down and see it very, very differently and have enormous insights about the world. And I don't know if, you know, I don't know if part of that is being somebody who, who grew up Indian and moved to the United States or we, he, and if he would have stayed in India, uh, it, it wouldn't have been as unusual. Or if it's just, I actually think it's just an unusual mind. And he turned the whole thing on its head and he just said, look, this is not uh, $650,000 for lunch. Um, this is, first of all, it's a donation to a charity. Uh, and many people can donate that amount and more to all sorts of charities. And they don't get lunch with Warren Buffett. They just get the a plaque on the wall or some recognition in a brochure. Um, and then, uh, you know, he really uh, helped me to see how it was, you know, it's the extraordinary actions that we do in life that make all the difference. And this was an extraordinary thing to do, something that people thought was, uh, was a little nuts. And, you know, um, but what was the downside? The downside was that we'd given some money to a charity and the upside was something extraordinary, and it turned out to be something extraordinary. But at the end of the day, we didn't have more than the amount that we were giving for the lunch to lose for doing it. And we had plenty of evidence that, that it would it would turn out way better than, than the minimum. But you were going to ask something. Yeah, so regarding that downside which you are talking about, I just want to quantify that. Uh, so what uh, the check you have written, that what? is the percentage i mean what is that was that a significant portion of your uh, uh, overall net worth at that time at that point of time or uh, uh, just want to quantify that well it, 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 yeah it was so that's important it was coming 
it was coming at the end or during a period where I'd had some really good returns and I'd made um, some uh, I'd, I'd made some some um, substantial incentive fees. So uh, it was it was a uh, you know I don't know I I can't. I don't have precise calculations of what my net worth was at the time. It certainly wasn't 50% of my net worth. Uh, it wasn't even 10% of my net worth. It was certainly less than 10%, perhaps less 5% of my net worth. So, I, and, and it was not like I had any debt or it was money that I didn't have. Uh, what I would say is that at the time that we were bidding, um, my, uh, you know, we were just starting a family and I don't know, if 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 you guys have started families, if you haven't, I'm sure you have listeners who have. And you know, you you look at the expenditure that you're going to have to have when you, when you when you have children. So I I it wasn't expenditure that I knew I needed to have right then, but it was expenditure that I knew I would need to have in the future. And so I was I actually at some point during the bidding came to Monish and said, look, I have to cap my commitment to this, I can't spend more than a certain amount because it just wouldn't be prudent for me to do that given where I am in my life. And um, so uh, uh, it, it was, uh, but it was, a, it was a sum that I was willing, so, so it was a sum that I was willing to spend and it was prudent within my circumstances, but there was a cap above which I wasn't willing to go. Uh, and actually the, we won the lunch at very, very close to my cap. Very, very close, uh, and uh, and and I just I, I I had told Monish that if I we go beyond that cap, I can spend up to that cap. I cannot spend beyond that cap. Simple as that. So I'm we are glad that it worked for you. <laughs> I'm glad too. I'm very I'm very glad. And, and and even though Krishna is asking whether it was a multi bagger for you or not, but I'm pretty sure it was. Uh, I I don't think there's a doubt about that. You know I what well, I think that. Um, Look, I, I I can't measure the return right. on the investment because I don't know how my life would have unfolded had I not made effectively that investment. And I think that uh, that's one of the many things that it taught me is that we we just certainly should not live our lives uh, spending enormous amounts of money on unlikely gains. So. Um, you know, uh, nobody, we all know that it is smart to walk into a casino and to gamble money on the roulette table. Uh, and um, this was a, look, the, this was not a classic value investment in that, you know, heads, heads I gain a lot, tails I don't lose much. Well, you know, in terms of percent of the amount that I was spending, the downside was that I'd have a nice lunch, but I, I would I would not have gained any return on uh, the um, uh, the money that I spent on the lunch. I think, though, that you know, to, to so many of the you know, they're kind of I think I described it somewhere as a, as an as relative to my circumstances at the time, a kind of a, a relatively inexpensive lottery ticket. And I don't think we should spend our times playing lotteries, but. There are all sorts of opportunities that I think life offers us to kind of to to get those kinds of um, you know potentially very very high reward results if we just change our behavior slightly differently. So I'll tell you I'll tell you two things that I've done recently. Uh, one one of which had a payoff and one of which didn't have a payoff. So 
there's um, a uh, a very well-known investor that, that I and I don't want to mention his name because it might trigger all sorts of other things. But um, you know, many many well-known investors uh, have been going through a difficult period the last couple of years, and so this is somebody that I'd met. And I wrote him a letter, and I just said, you know, I know that you're going through a difficult period right now, but I think you're a fantastic guy, and I think that you'll come through this uh, and and do really well. And, um, you know, it, what did it cost me? It cost me the time to write the letter and the postage stamp. Uh, but he was so touched that he sent me an email and said, please come by my office. And so I went by his office, and we had a very, very short meeting. But but that was a that was a, a wonderful payoff actually for very very little effort and I think that if perhaps one of the biggest lessons from that lunch with Buffett is that we all have opportunities to do that I have opportunities to do that kind of thing every day and I don't take enough of them and so just to give you the other example um, you know there was a guy there is a guy he's he's a political leader in the United Kingdom. Uh, his name is Nick Clegg, so here I'd, I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, he's he. I didn't see eye to eye with him politically, uh, but um, now that Britain has voted for Brexit, and I am not a supporter of Brexit, I see him as a guy who might be the best leader for Britain. And he's not he's not a very popular politician right now. So again, I, I wrote him a letter and I just said, hey, you know, if, if there is a way for me to help you in what you are seeking to do, then, um, you know, I'm there. Now, I haven't heard back from him, but that's okay. I think that, you know, it didn't cost me anything to write that letter. It cost me nothing. And, and he might have seen it and felt good and he might reach out at some point. So um, perhaps one of the biggest lessons is not... And I guess what's important for the three of you, Puneet, Navid, and Krishna, and our listeners is, you know, the, the, a really important takeaway from this conversation is not, oh, well, you know, Guy Spears is so lucky because he met Monish Pabrai and they together bid on and won a lunch with Warren Buffett. And guess what? I live in, you know, in, uh, in, in Uttar Pradesh or in Hyderabad or, you know, uh, Orissa, and I can't do that, so I'm lost, you know? And, and, but there, so that, that would be the wrong conclusion to take. The right conclusion is to say, what opportunities do I have in my life to do similar kinds of actions that don't actually cost me that much, that are within my means, that could have a very, very high payoff if the world turns out right? And I actually believe that, that we all have many more opportunities to do that than we actually take. Wow, that's that's a fabulous lesson, Guy. Um, let me just, you know... So, so, uh, I, so, yeah. so, so no, sorry, I have a uh, just one expansion of that thought. So so the listeners of, of, uh, of uh, Stoic uh, Investing Podcast and the website readers, uh, you have a group of people who invest an enormous amount of time and effort to, to share the wisdom that they learn with you. And I would tell you, you try it out. Uh, find a way, and, and I, you guys, you, you'd have to put a, a, a mailing address up there, which I recommend that you do. Don't write an email to them. Their email inboxes are full of emails. Write them a personal note and put it in the post. Uh, and believe me, you'll be doing, uh, you know, the, you, you'll be amazed at what could happen as a result. So 
I'm encouraging everybody who listens to Stoic Investing to send in a note if you like the work that Puneet and Navid and Krishna are doing, to send them a note telling them that. It will it will do incredible things, I think. Thanks a lot, uh, Guy. Um, you know, let's, so from your Warren Buffett lunch, now let's go to your uh, investing process in general. Um, you know, in one of your, so I'm, I'm just taking you to the complete valuation, uh, complete value investing process. And in my mind, I'm, I have the process as taught by Bruce Greenwald in my mind. When you start and you have mentioned in one of your interviews that you use a large amount of screens using capital IQ, not using Bloomberg. And you use, uh, uh, you have also mentioned that high ROICs and RIRC companies is not what you're looking for. Can you take us through some specific screens which you use? The idea is not to find the screens, but to find what uh, parameters you give more importance to when you're doing your search. And uh, we can keep it quantitative separate and then qualitatively separate. So, you know, um, uh, here's here's the first place that I, I would start. You know, the, the hunt for a great investment idea is not some kind of serene academic exercise. It is a hunt. It is, it is a, um, the people doing it have something that goes very, very deep into their psyche, uh, that, that, that makes them want to find these things and succeed at them. And so, uh, maybe, and I'll, I, I will answer your question more directly, but, but just to give another analogy that I think might be helpful is if, if you take, so, so there are people, or maybe you don't find them in India with Hindu culture, but there are people who actually enjoy hunting, believe it or not. And they go out with bows and arrows or with guns or whatever it is, and they try and find an animal. In the UK, they used to have fox hunting. And there is a, um, the, the neuroscientists have, dev- have found a mechanism in the brain that's called the seeking mechanism. The seeking mechanism is something where you have a goal and you, you, you kind of trying to find your way to it. And that's what activates in people when, for example, they go hunting. That's also what activates in us when we fall in love with a woman and we're courting her. There's a seeking me- mechanism. There are all these urges to, in the human body, especially in males, to reproduce and we start finding all sorts of ways to find ourselves with the person that we're after. So any of the things that I describe in terms of what I'm trying to do investing-wise is not going to go, you know, all of them are in a sense not worth it if you don't have that sort of powerful seeking mechanism, seeking to find uh, great investments. And and in a certain sense, that is the most important thing because everything else uh, one will learn one way or another. And and so, uh, in a certain way, that seeking mechanism and the, the, the activation of as many, many aspects of our, um, the intelligence of all forms in our brain, I think is what we need to activate in order to find great investments. So, um, you know, it's the seeking more than any particular one thing or another. And uh, the reason why we're on this call is that we're all after that, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I would tell you that um, in a certain sense, having having experienced great difficulties in this in this fight over horsehead that was pretty public, um, that seeking mechanism with me has now been dosed with a healthy, healthy, a new and healthy 
experience of the ways in which investing can go wrong, which in, which informs my seeking me mechanism, if you like. And um, uh, but but because I've I've become far more acutely aware of how things and how quickly things can go wrong, I'm I'm kind of. Uh, you know, if if you consider me like a sort of dog chasing chasing the the scent, uh, you know, instead of running as fast as I can, I'm going carefully. So that's just, but but in a certain sense, and and I'm sorry to to make, and I'll get to more practical aspects of this, but um, no problem, guys. Just take your time. We are enjoying this whole uh, whole detailing, so don't worry about it. I think that you know. So again, you know, it's kind of riffing on a theme that I just talked about. Your listeners should not be thinking to themselves, oh, I need to go and do screens like Guy Spear does. Uh, first of all, uh, they may not have access to the same information. Second of all, you know, the, the, the reaction to the screen uh, may be different and the ways you deal with it may be different. I think that the important thing is to say, what is in front of me right now? Not what would I like to be in front of if I was in Guy's shoes or Guy Spear, myself, who spent a lot of time thinking, if only I was in Warren Buffett's shoes, oh my, then I could make some really good decisions. You know? Or uh, or or a little bit close to the bone, um, uh, Todd Combs. You know, I only wish that I had Warren Buffett down the office, down the, down the corridor for me. I mean, if I could have a daily conversation with Warren Buffett, oh my God, I mean, you, you could see what I could do. But I'm not. I'm Guy Spear sitting in my office, and your listeners are who they are sitting in their office or at their desk. And so that's where we have to uh, go from. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, 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 so then let's just get to slightly more practical things. Um, you know, what informa information sources do I have? And we're all faced with a barrage of stuff on the Internet, but we have to start selecting very carefully and being very quick to push out of our minds and away sources of information that are going to mess with our minds. And so, um, you know, I, I would say that I have a, a distractible mind. I, Guy Spear, spend far more time than I ought to be spending looking at sources which aren't as authoritative as they ought to be. So it's so easy to go to the Internet in one way or another and see what people say about something. And we have to say, and, and, and it's interesting and can be helpful, but that is not a primary source. So we want to try and uh, focus on primary source information. Uh, and then, you know, I'll give you two more points before coming back to try and answer some of your questions uh, more precisely. But when we talk about primary source information, you know, company accounts is, is always the most important uh, management statements unfiltered management statements, I would argue, come come pretty close as well. Uh, but what we need to remember is that those company accounts uh, and those statements are not necessarily the underlying reality with this idea that the map is not the territory. Uh, and I think that at the end of the day, what we're looking for is something where the map that is in everybody's minds as to what is actually, what it, what they think is going on with a particular company or opportunity is not what is actually going on. And and we're just looking for a divergence between the two. We're looking for, for one in which people, you know, hate something when the the underlying reality is is, is quite a bit better. Um, 
So I, you know, I, I, I've, I've gone, I went on one tangent. So now why don't you bring me back on track and remind me of what you actually want me to answer? <laughs> Guys, great that, you know, you gave that perspective and I would, uh, you know, take this opportunity to tell the listeners also the purpose of these kind of questions. And I completely, you know, agree that uh, looking at one set of uh, answers make it a very bad way of approaching investing per se. Uh, but but what happens is that a large amount of people who are starting up their careers and you know they are looking to they're seeking some more specific inputs. So I try to expose them to specific inputs from a variety of investors so that they are able to take that uh, take that as a experiment ground. Let's say so that's that's the reason. So coming back to my question, um, well, uh, so the question was that you use quantitative screens as you mentioned in one of your interviews uh, using Capital IQ. Um, and you also mentioned that, you know, uh, generally high ROICs, high ROC companies, et cetera, et cetera, are very expensive. Um, they don't necessarily give you the best idea. So can you go through some specific parameters, some screens, which you find more helpful than others in your search for ideas? So, you know, I'll, I'll just give you uh, one that I've enjoyed uh, recently um, is... Uh, you know, so many of the numbers in the accounts can be manipulated in one way or another. And if if we're going into a source like Capital IQ and trying to um, uh, screen based on financial information, well, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If the numbers are manipulated on the way in, what likelihood is that, that I can use the screen effectively? So I, I realized that was... There's a couple of numbers which are very, very hard to manipulate. Uh, one is the number of shares outstanding. Um, and another is the sales number. I mean, you can manipulate the sales number a little bit, but, but not by a lot because it's just, you know, most people agree on what a sale is. They might not agree on the depreciation or they might not agree on um, different measures of cash generation, but the sales are the sales. So, you know, I, I ask myself, what about, you know, and I actually think this is a very, very powerful idea. Why not restrict myself to the universe of companies that have done two simple things? That they've reduced the share count and have increased their sales per share. Simple as that. And what I've learned is that it's just so easy to issue stock. Uh, and and me, the vast majority of companies do it. So what if I just say, I will not look uh, at any company that over a five-year period ends up with more shares outstanding than less shares outstanding. And there may be a lot of very good reasons why a company should issue more stock. And so I'm cutting all of those out of the picture. And then, you know, I'm saying, but not only should their shares have been reduced, but their revenue per share has to have increased. So that's some very, very rough measure of um uh, whether the business has improved, whether the actual business has improved on a per share basis. Not looking at earnings per share, which, like I said, can be manipulated in all sorts of ways, but sales per share. And um, I think it throws up some some really really interesting companies. And and my problem is is that you know it still throws up out of a universe of of thirty thousand companies that are potentially investable. It throws up at least four or five hundred potential investments, which is more than I could look at in a year. So then I still have to kind of slice through. But I think that that's where 
you know, Charlie Munger talks about what happens when combinations of things come together and, and you get some extraordinary results. And, and that's where the answer at that point, having done a very rough cut through the data, is not to do more data analysis, but to actually bring some other aspect of my intelligence into the picture. And so, uh, you know, one example that I've experimented with, which actually hasn't yielded uh, all those good, all that good results, is what would happen if I took every CEO of one of these companies and one of these screens and sent him a short letter and said, you know, dear CEO, this is I'm writing to you because this is uh, you came up on this screen, and um, you know I'd love to have a conversation with you, <laughs> or uh, now that that it just it creates so so that's created too much noise. Uh, I think that a process of, uh, you know, reading uh, the annual reports of every single one of those companies is probably a very, very good thing to do. I think that, uh, you know, if, if if I was to create a basket and just invest in the companies that meet that screen, I think that I would do, I, I would do really fine as an investor, really, really fine. Uh, you know, instinctively, I'm quite certain that, you know, slice the data with using, for example, a quantitative technique. But then don't, you know, to a man with a hammer, everything pretty much looks like a nail. Don't keep using quantitative techniques. Then then use a different technique. Uh, uh, go start looking at the accounting. Maybe out of 500 companies that meet those criteria, it's easy to find 200 who have bad accounting for one reason or another. And that's a question of forensically going through each one's annual reports and looking for, you know, um, uh, depreciation tables that don't match reality, for example, or looking for, you know, removing every company that has an underfunded pension plan until we get to, until we get to something where now it's 10 or 15 companies and that starts to become something that we can really focus on. I, I would tell you that uh, we have very powerful as humans, we have very powerful herding instincts inside of us. So uh, doing things like running a quantitative screen like that, is great because it doesn't um, play to the herding instinct. What will tend to happen when one does any kind of investment work is we'll want to go for the ideas that already feel safe because other people that we know are in them. And um, so, and I don't think that, so, so I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. I just think that we're better if we're aware that that's going to happen. So I'll look down the screen that I just described, and the companies that will pop out to me are the ones that I already know my friends are invested in. And what I need to say is, well, maybe some of these other ones that my friends are not invested in are worth looking at, and let's see if they've missed something. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. I don't know. I don't know if that helps. And maybe this, I'll, I'll say this, and then you can come back and try and get me back on track a little bit. Your listeners and readers are looking, think that Guy Spear, who's been doing this now for 20 years, think that I have some sense of mastery, a feeling of mastery as I do this. I don't have a feeling of mastery. I have the feeling that I am poking around in the dark, shining a little a little uh, torch, you know, trying to see whether I am, trying to find something that makes sense to do. Uh, and I, I think that's that's perfectly normal. <laughs> so if you feel a sense of disorientation, if you feel a sense of I don't really know what I'm doing, if you feel um, like, wow, the, the, this is hard, then that's about right, I think. It shouldn't feel easy. Right. 
Right. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, in between you said a thing which made uh, sense to me and also probably would be the next question that most of the time when you zero down to some companies on the basis of the criteria as you mentioned, plus your own intelligence and study, and then you often it happens that some of the smart investors generally will be holding those companies. Uh, that brings me to a point that over the last few years, um, because of the focus on high quality companies and investing on high quality companies, generally these companies, well, you don't find that much of a price and value gap, which which used to be the case some time back. Uh, do you think moat investing in particularly has become a difficult experience in the last five, 10 years? I, uh, you know, I, I didn't hold on to it, which was very dumb of me, but I bought Crizzle at four times earnings or something you know, the Indian credit rating company. Uh, that was insane. It was incredible. I bought um, the shares of, a, of of an American credit rating company called Duffin Phelps. Uh, I, I bought it at a single digit multiple of earnings. It was, a, it was an excellent business and it was extraordinarily cheap. And such ideas just do not exist anymore because uh, for every, I mean, for every company, small cap company even, that has a great moat, there are dozens of people like Guy Spear uh, who can understand that moat and who go and invest in it. And when I get to those things, almost always too late, and they don't sit around. They, they, they just they go up very quickly. And so, um, I, yeah, the, I think the environment has got a lot harder. Yeah, <laughs> and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, does that change your strategy in any way? Or um, uh, I just have to ask this. Uh, was the reason to go into multiple geographies affected by that? Because you have very limited ideas in one geography? Or was it a thing you started from? No, I mean, I, I think for me, uh, the idea of multiple geographies, I, I just, you know... First of all, I, I grew up in many countries, and I have um, friends and relatives in many countries, and I feel at home in many countries. So, I look, national borders do exist, and people need visas to travel between different countries, and there are trade barriers, But and the environment is very different. The environment in India is very different to the environment in the United States, but I, it was just a personal choice for me that felt natural to me that I was... I wanted to see the world as seamless and I, you know, a priori, I wanted to be able to say I'm willing to look at investments anywhere because I need to make, and I would have done that no matter how difficult or easy the environment was. I would have done that and I would have wanted to look globally. I don't think anything else uh, makes sense. I think that there are various different pendulums that swing in the investment world and so we get right now my sense is that we're in a period where uh, because of the rise of indexing um, if you're a relatively large cap company then you are in a very special world where the index funds just keep have to, having to put more money into your stock and you're in a very very strong position whereas if you're a small cap uh, company, then you are likely to be missed. Unfortunately, many of those small cap companies, moat, 
uh, or have a moat that's being ripped to shreds right now by the internet. So it's not like the undervalued small companies are necessarily uh, any better. And I think that investing in businesses with well-protected moats is, a, is such a powerful idea that it's, you know, it's not smart to give it up just because it's become more difficult. Uh, and so I, I think that the search for moats is the appropriate place to be, even though many of those moats uh, are very highly valued. And a lot of, you know, many of the moats are highly valued and many more of the moats are being destroyed. Uh, and um, so it's, it's, it's in a certain sense not worth buying either. But that is the place to study and to look. And I don't know how the world will change. I, I don't, I know that the pendulum will swing back in one way or another. How it swings back, I don't know. Uh, but it, in a certain way, um, the, the, the water I want to swim in is the universe of better businesses. And you know, like the guy, you know, that's, that's my water. If I'm a fish, that's my water. There's no point getting out of that water because then I will certainly die. Uh, and, and even if the water is not as, as it was, that's where I need to be. But, but uh, just a continuation to that. So uh, in case you are you know, not able to find too many good opportunities, uh, what is the alternative use of cash you do at that point in time? Do you prefer to stay in cash? Or do, you, I mean, do you have other kind of S-classes you look to? Well, well, two things. One is that... Um, uh, the 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 alternative to the the no good opportunities or harder to find good opportunities is to accept that the returns will be lower for a period. Uh, I think that um, in a in a normal interest rate environment, uh, cash would be a good place to be, uh, but because uh, interest rates are so low and I still have expectations of high inflation. Cash is potentially a very, very dangerous place to be, and and I I think that sort of saying that you want to be I want to be in cash is um, is dangerously close to saying that I'm going to time the market. So and I don't want to time the market. I'm kind of saying to myself over a long period of time I'll do better if I'm invested in equities. At some points they'll be extraordinarily cheap. At other points they'll be less cheap. But I want to remain in equities. I would tell you that there, you know, having said what I said, that moats are highly valued. We're going through a period where good moats that are established that aren't getting destroyed by the internet are highly valued, and there are many moats that may be not so good that are being destroyed. So where do you invest? Well, you try and stay in the good moats, even if you have to pay up for them. I believe two other places that I think of are interesting to look. One is uh, that I I, I will. Um, be spending more time in, I believe, going forwards is uh, reorganizations of different kinds. So it's something where I have grossly underperformed my potential. So Warren Buffett told some students the other day that um, uh, if he had a million dollars, uh, he'd be in four stocks and he would earn, I don't know, some crazy return PR. Uh, that wouldn't happen if you had his four stocks were uh, sort of like American large caps. And I think that it doesn't mean that you're looking for small caps. You're actually looking for corporate reorganizations. You're looking for situations where securities are being changed, where, where, where debt's being swapped for equity, 
where where a company is uh, issuing new stock to cover too much debt, where there's, there's corporate acquisitions taking place. So I think I've spent far too little time looking at, in the US, you would call them special situations. And I ought to be spending more time doing that. And uh, it's a whole skill set that I have to learn and I have to get better at. But that is one place that is not affected by this idea that moats are hard to invest in because they're too high, highly valued of being destroyed. The other thing that I think that is is especially interesting for uh, your listeners, so uh, special situations, I've realized the more lawyers I talk to, the more special situations there are around because many lawyers are working on all sorts of transactions and they can't necessarily tell me about the transactions that they are working on but they can give me a sense of, of what is coming down the pike in different industries, for example. Um, but the other place that I think is very interesting is the search for new moats. Uh, and um, uh, that is something where you don't have to be an expert in securities analysis or the kind of uh, the, the interaction between the legal side of things and the corporate side of things when companies go through, let's say, a spin-off or a reorg of some kind. Uh, but new moats, so I, I'll just give you uh, three examples of uh, businesses that um, I've tried to understand if they're moats, new moats or not. So one, VeriSign, is one that I feel like I missed. Uh, VeriSign are the um, domain registrar for the .com domain. And yes, it's true, it's, it's very inexpensive to create new top-level domains like and we have .tv and .us and .cc and all sorts of new domain names. But the premier domain, top-level domain that everybody wants is .com. And if you have a .com domain name, you have to pay a registration fee, which is to your cost of a business of very, very low cost uh, to um, uh, uh, this company, VeriSign. Ver Ver and that's just an enormously cash-generative business. It's a very, very good economics. It is very, very highly valued, but I think that I was in a position to have identified that six or seven years ago when the company was a lot less expensive uh, and the moat was not as well recognized. So the emergence of new moats that occur because the, the world is changing and uh, you know, some many moats are being destroyed, but some moats are being created, and and it's possible to see that perhaps before Wall Street does, you know, based on your individual knowledge. Uh, and it's not, you know, what's what important to say is that it's not going to be those aren't moats that we're going to find by typing into Google new emerging moats. You know, that's that's the, all we will get is secondhand information. It actually requires us yeah. to sort of sit in a to go away and think, well, based on my knowledge of the world, based on what I'm seeing, uh, what um, what moats are developing. And for example, in this case, I realized that I'd, I'd gone and registered four or five dot-com domain names. And, uh, you know, they were costing me a relatively inexpensive amount of money, so little that I didn't really care to, to cancel them, even if I wasn't using them. And to realize that there's a company on the other end that basically just maintains a registration of those names and it's it's cost them nothing to do or, or, or close to nothing. Uh, so that that's one example. So emerging moats, I think, is a very, very interesting area to explore. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, within your answer, I was I had a question in mind and probably I got the answer, but I'll still ask it, uh, is that I'm assuming that 
in the quest for those emerging modes, um, the managements and getting their viewpoints becomes a very crucial point for you. And in one of the interviews, I was reading your journey through that process that you like you didn't like the idea of meeting managements earlier, especially after the lunch with Buffett and all. And then you have shifted that point of view towards meeting management. And I have gone through in my you know decade of investing to the absolute reverse process. I used to love to meet managements, and now I think that I always get biased, uh, more or less. And so uh, I would like to hear, you know, your views on that and how important is that in your uh, quest for those um, emerging modes, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, uh, first of all, you know, if if we're not changing, we're not learning uh, and we're not growing. So, so, you know, just because any one of us expressed a, a view yesterday, uh, doesn't mean that, so, so, you know, nothing is, is set in stone. We, as if, I think it was John Maynard Keynes when in Parliament, he said, so it was something like, uh, when the facts change, facts sir, change, yeah. change my mind. What do you do? Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, I think that, um, you know, in a certain sense, we may all be touching the elephant at different parts. You know, somebody touches the elephant at the nose and feels something moist, touches the elephant legs, they feel something hairy. Somebody, somebody's at the wrong end of the elephant and they say, wow, this smells terrible. It, and we're all touching an elephant, but we just all see different things. And so uh, I think that um, just, you know, each company is not the same. Each company is, in a certain way, sui generis. It's its own thing uh, and requires a different approach. And um, uh, I think that the, the process by which we go about seeking to understand, you know, in a certain way, what we're talking about is, so if, if the map is, um, you know, the company's accounts uh, and the numbers that they put up, then, then would you know? How do we define, or how do we discover what the actual territory is? How do we touch the actual thing? And I think that in different circumstances, it will be different things. So, in the case of, for example, very large financial American financial institutions, the the which have very very good reporting, talking to the management is probably less helpful because they see the same numbers that we see. Yeah, maybe they see a little bit more in terms of budgets and what have you, but they themselves are sitting in a head office in New York and gathering information through accountants about what is going on in their businesses. You know, the probability that speaking to management there is going to give us insights that are different to what we see from the accounts is very low. Uh, and then we get a whole range of businesses where actually what we want to do is go out and talk not to the management, but to the customers. Uh, and see how the company's products are actually doing in the marketplace. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, so I, I know some people here in Zurich who spend a lot of time visiting trade fairs, especially for uh, manufacturing companies. They go and find out what the customers are saying about the companies and its competitors' products. Uh, and uh, uh, in those cases, actually, it also might not be worth speaking to management, but for a different reason than a financial institution. In a financial institution, probably see the same numbers that we see. In the case of many manufacturing companies, the management are, um, 
you know, they're in sales mode all the time, even the CEO. And so they will only be able to tell you that their products are great and the sales are going to be great. And uh, because that's what they really want to believe. And that's how they've gotten to where they are in the company. And that's how they've made the company successful. So, but then there may be other circumstances, family controlled businesses, for example, who are not really interested in the outside shareholders anyway, and who've held the company in their, in their family for generations. Uh, who have a very um, uh, a very realistic view of the world and, and have been doing it a long time, those are people where it might be very valuable to talk to the management because, because they really are a good source of information. And so I think that what we need to do is, is again, there's, there's no... We, we need to intelligently evaluate the situation that we're in and decide what the, what the best move in terms of gathering information is. And in each situation, it will be different. Uh, you know, we would if we're if we're going to walk if we're going to walk across Asia, we're going to take the Silk Route across Asia. We're going to cross deserts. We're going to cross mountains. We're going to cross uh, you know rivers and streams. And each one of those circumstances requires something different and a different set of tools. And so, uh, what the real thing to do is just is to. I think that the basic seeking idea, I'm seeking the best investment ideas. I need to continue to learn about the world and acquire information about the world. But the way I acquire it in different circumstances has, by the nature of it, to be different. And sure. am I doing the best possible thing? You know, there, there are many ways. Uh, there are some real pitfalls to talking to the management. But in the right circumstances, it might be the best thing to do. And the, the only thing, the devil, or, the, or the, the answer is in the details, I guess. Right. Completely agree. And in fact, uh, a number of times after you do the factual study, which you said using the Ks and Qs, uh, some of the answers can be answered by nobody but the management. So I think in that case, it makes sense. Yeah. but So I think that, you know, what, what I'm trying to do is to say, you know, it's not like, what does my theory tell me I should do or what, you know, what is the most intelligent way to go about this in the circumstances that I have? What is the smartest thing to do given what I have available to me and what I have in front of me? And, um, you know, and that might include putting up a, putting up a, uh, in, in certain circumstances, putting up a poll on the internet and saying, hey, I'm curious to know what everybody thinks of this and, and to see what comes out. Uh, but not in all circumstances, you know? Um, I think that you know here I think that what becomes really interesting is strategies that apply across many many different circumstances and I'll I'll just give you um uh two one that I think ought to work that I've used but hasn't done anything for me yet uh, and one that I think is very effective that I have done not nearly enough of and and that I should have so the one that hasn't done anything for me yet is to pick somebody at the company and write to them. Either, you know, ideally a physical letter saying, which, and the letter basically says, Dear X, I spent some time with your, um, with your uh, publicly available materials and uh, you know, here are two or three thoughts that I had. Warm regards, Guy. So giving them a little bit of feedback in hope that they might reach out and, and provide me with some more information. I, what I'd say is that every now and then what I do get is I get an email from the investor relations, which is not a terrible thing, but I can't, I can't say that 
doing that has delivered any blinding insights or I don't think it's led to any particularly fantastic investment ideas. But, you know, again, it's like you just continue to experiment with the uh, information environment. And there are so many things. I continue to do that because there are so many things in the world that are nonlinear. So, you know, somebody said, you know, I write in my book that it's good to write um, uh, thank you notes. And somebody says, yeah, I wrote a thank you note and it didn't do me very much. And my answer is, yeah, you need to write about 10,000 of them before something happens because the nature of that thing is it's a bit like a bucket. You have to keep filling the bucket and there's not much happening with the bucket until the bucket gets full. And it's only then that the water starts flowing out and then there's a lot of water that sloshes out. But you have to spend a lot of time filling that bucket before it happens. So my kind of individual notes to individuals in the corporations I think is a is a kind of like the buffet, bucket filling process and maybe the bucket's half full. So I've been doing it for five years. I have to do it for another five years and then that would start uh, paying dividends. So, so that's something that I've done, which has not delivered results. Now to give you something that I haven't done enough of, which I think um, is extremely powerful. And, you know, I'm a little angry at myself because this is straight from the, from the, from the guru's mouth, from Warren Buffett, who said that he's done this is that when I meet a member of the management, you know, ask them uh, one simple question or two simple questions. The, the one is, who, who in the industry do you respect the most? Who in the industry, if you had a silver bullet, would you want to take out? Uh, would you, as Which competitor would you not want to have in your marketplace? And the idea is, is that people can't describe their own business very well because they're in it they can see the marketplace very, very well, and they know the relative strengths and weaknesses of their competitors very, very well. The minute you've spoken to four or five people in any particular industry or business, you will have a very, very good sense of who who are the winners and who are the losers, who are the people to who, who are the most investable, who are the people who are the least investable. Uh, and um, so that's something that I think is so easy to do. And I think that that, that is a question that Buffett has trained himself to ask everyone, you know, and uh, and I think that over time you build up some very very powerful pictures because you're using meta knowledge, but but you know just think of this simple reorientation of instead of asking, you know, funnily enough, the, the CEO of Nestle now is a guy um, Mark Schneider who was actually at business school with me, so. You know, not that I've met him recently, but I might meet him at a school reunion or something, and and I could ask him the question. So, how's business at Nestle? You know, I could spend five hours listening to him if he had the time to having him tell me about business at Nestle. Or I could ask him, which of your competitors do you most fear, or would you most want taken out? And and that coming from his mouth, if he were to say, well, it's Mondelez. You know, and and that you know that is an enormously valuable piece of information that didn't take a lot lot of time to get out of him. And then obviously the question is, well, why? Uh, and and so that seems to me to be a really powerful question that I ought to have asked many, many, many more times, and I haven't done. Absolutely. Uh, actually, uh, Peter Lynch also has asked the same thing to uh, in the in the regions for his companies. Like he'll ask, uh, what is which competitor? That company uh, wants to remove from the market, and that definitely makes sense. So, I mean, praising the competitor from 
and one company's own words that that's the biggest thing that can ever happen to them to its competitor so, by the way i'm just looking at uh changing direction slightly i'm looking at the, my twitter feed and um uh there's a there's a guy whose whose first name must be prakash because it's it's ch prakash 9 who's asked me when i'm going to publish an indian version of my book yeah. prakash uh, the minute I saw that Monish had an Indian version, I wrote to my agent and my publisher saying, when are you guys going to publish an Indian version? And I haven't yet heard a response, but I, I you know, go out and buy Monish Pabrai's book if you can, uh, because the more successful his book is in India, the more likely it is that they would publish my one in India. And, <laughs> you know, I wish I had control over it, but I don't. So it's uh, regarding uh, Black Strands events. So as Talib says, uh, uh, we are in such a days that obvious things are becoming rare and rare things are becoming obvious. So a recent example is a uh, horse holding for your fund. So how did you handle that Black Swan event? And uh, uh, in case of such events, how do you position yourself? I mean, apart from we have a risk, uh, a risk uh, mitigation strategies like diversification and uh, cash holdings. Apart from that, do you have any anti-fragile strategies? I mean. Okay, so cash holding, as per Talib, it's kind of a robust and being on being in uh, equity is kind of fragile. So do you have any anti-fragile strategies? Like, uh, do you short the market sometimes or uh, or do you, uh, so what are the strategies? And uh, uh, as per your recent uh, fund performance in household holdings. Yeah, so I, I you know, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thank you for bringing up such a painful topic, but um, but actually, more seriously, genuinely, thank you because uh, you can uh, give me the opportunity to rub my nose in my own mistakes, uh, which, as Charlie Munger has taught us, is a good thing uh, to do. Um, I don't think that shorting is an anti-fragile strategy. I think that shorting um, can can create all sorts of problems and headaches, and can actually make a portfolio a lot more fragile because. The guy who shorts something against his long positions always thinks that the thing that he's shorting will go down more by by his long positions if uh, if things go bad, but it never works out or never. It often doesn't work out that way. I think that there are we can see in the history of uh, of hedge funds in the United States there have been a number of circumstances in which funds have gone out of business because their longs went down while their shorts went up. They're telling their investors, this is impossible. Uh, this can't happen. We shorted these things because they would go down when their longs go down, but that, that's not the way the world was for a while. And there's this concept that the world can be, um, the world, the world can be irrational for a lot longer than we can remain solvent. Um, you know, the key, the, the, the number one massive mistake that I made in Horsehead was not to pay attention to how the leverage in the company was building up. Uh, and, you know, and the, the, the big change that I've made in my uh, investing process is to have this in-flight checklist. Just to, you know, to give you a sense, we have, because I'm now regulated in Switzerland, I, there are all sorts of things I have to do to keep my FINMA license. And FINMA is the Swiss regulatory body and we have weekly meetings, and I have to prepare for management team. Uh, uh, I prepare kind of an in-flight checklist on existing investments, and literally 
it's the same checklist as I have for the for the um, what before I invest in the company. It's it's in a spreadsheet, all seventy to eighty questions, and and every now and then I add a question to the mix when I realize it's an important question, and I answer the question. And obviously, one of the questions is: Has the company taken on any major new debt? If so, why is this not an issue? Because in the time that I held Horsehead, uh, the um, they took on a lot of debt for a very good reason. They were building a phenomenal plant that just took too long to bring up to speed and was was very very expensive to bring up to speed. Uh, but um, uh, that was the, the most profound and fundamental mistake that I made. Uh, the second mistake uh, was that I was uh, far too concentrated in that idea. And so, um, you know, I'd, I'd invested 10% at cost of my portfolio into that fund. That was far too high a percentage of my portfolio in any idea. If we just step back from, um, you know, sort of orientation towards risk and, and um, sort of aggressiveness in investing, Noticed that it is just by the nature of things that in periods of good returns, you know, I start feeling angry at myself because I didn't have enough money invested in my best ideas. It gives me the desire to want to concentrate my investments. And similarly, when I've just gone through a period of bad performance, then a lot more fearful and I'm investing a lot less in even my best ideas because diversification is a good insurance against uh, not knowing. Um, uh, on, against not knowing checklist certainly would have helped me with the leverage would help me with the concentration in the portfolio um, and and this may you may find unusual is that I realize and none of this is in the book but it's actually far more important than you know Bloomberg monitor and trading rules is I having many more conversations with my wife uh, about um, the nature of investing and the way it goes through cycles and how to understand that I will go through periods when I look like I'm a genius and that her job is not to think of me as a genius. In fact, her job is to tear me down a few notches and me see myself as not a genius. Uh, at the same time, there'll be other times that I'll look like a complete idiot. And uh, she has to help me to see that I'm not a complete idiot. So trying to actually it's the most important relationship in my life trying to make sure that in a certain way my wife is counter cyclical in her psychology with me rather than pro cyclical uh, so uh, don't pretend don't imagine your husband's a genius when the world thinks he is don't imagine that you're, you and, and help build your husband up in his confidence when the world thinks that he's a complete uh, uh, failure um, I think that that would have helped me with the concentration I think that um, in my case, it was a real sort of lollapalooza in that I had come off some years of great performance in the portfolio. I just published a book. Uh, the book had, had a very, very good reception. And so there were a number of reasons why I was feeling uh, swaggerish. Uh, and that didn't, you know, I still had a, you know, it wasn't very, it wasn't Donald Trumpish. It wasn't like I was walking around saying, I'm so wonderful. But there was some part of me that sort of like, some part in my mind that said, "Hey, maybe I am a genius," you know. And your listeners should know that if if there's if they're walking around thinking that, believe me, if you are a genius, which you may well be, 
the market has a way of uncovering that and making you look like a nutter fool. Uh, and because if it did it to uh, Sir Isaac Newton, which it did, Isaac Newton was well known for being one of the most brilliant guys of his generation. He lost an awful lot of money in the South Sea bubble. And he, he, he actually said somewhere to a newspaper, he said, I can calculate the movements of the stars, but not the variations of the stock market. And um, so, but, but so finding a sort of counter cyclicality in the psychology of my close relationships, uh, both at work and at home, I think helps me against that. Um, I think that, you know, the, the, the most painful effect of Horsehead to me is that I made myself vulnerable through those two things uh, by allowing, by not selling the investment when the leverage built up, uh, and by having it too high a concentration in my portfolio. But then, you know, any, uh, I, I think that we were then caught by a management that, you know, the most charitable thing I can say is that they didn't try nearly hard enough to uh, prevent the shareholders from being wiped out. In fact, I would argue that they enthusiastically cooperated with the creditors to remove it from, uh, from our hands in spite of the fight that I put up. And if, they, if the company had lasted... If the company, if the if the management would have fought a little bit harder, uh, we would now be sitting on a on you know I would have not have lost any money in the investment, no doubt in my mind. The zinc price has gone, is now at all time highs. Uh, so very very painful. But there are some very simple things that I could have done, and uh, you know, although it's painful for me to do it in this conversation, thank you for giving me the opportunity to reiterate the mistakes that I made and to hopefully learn from them because I need to learn from them. Uh, so, a uh, very valid point, guy. And uh, just a continuation of that, uh, are there any modifications for your checklist after Horsehead happened? What was your thought process after uh, Horsehead fiasco? Yeah, so I, I knew, and I wrote about it in the book, this is why it's so painful for me. It's utterly clear to anybody who's been a student of the world of corporations and investments is that the first and quickest way to get yourself into trouble is to put yourself into leveraged circumstances or to invest in companies that have put themselves into leveraged circumstances. Uh, at the time that I invested in Horsehead, they were, they were barely leveraged, a very, very reasonable amount of debt. And so I certainly was aware of that, and that was part of my checklist upon walking into Horsehead. Uh, a combination of a rising stock price, uh, some smart decisions that the management had made, uh, and a... Um, decision that at the time that was a very the right decision for the company to build a plant completely switched this this new plant completely switched my brain off to how they funded the construction of that plant and um so they funded the just the construction of that plant in retrospect it's clear with with too much debt way too much debt and uh they could have just as easily or perhaps not as easily it would have been a little more difficult they could have gone to the shareholders and said, we need to fund this plant. We need $500 million. We're not issuing debt, so we need to raise the equity off you. But it wasn't a question of me not being aware of the dangers of leverage. I was aware of the danger of leverage, which made it, makes it even more painful for me. It's, that, it's the boiling frog syndrome where, you know, if I would have come to the company in 2014 and seen the debt, I would have just said, wow, looks amazing, but this company has the wrong capital structure. I'm not going to invest. Instead, I was already in it. The water was slowly boiling. So if you take a frog 
and you drop it into a boiling uh, pot of water, it'll jump straight out and will survive. If you put it into a pot of lukewarm water where it's all nice and cozy and you gradually put it onto the boil, the frog will never notice that actually it's sitting in boiling water and will get cooked. And so in my case, uh, that was the initiation of the in-flight checklist because I was slowly getting cooked in horsehead and I was not paying attention to it. I was already in it. And suddenly I woke up and realized that I was in boiling water, but by then it was too late to get out. And the key is, you know, check on an annual basis debt has the company taken on. You know, have they taken on too much debt? If, you know, and and um, uh, so I guess as I talk about it right now, the interesting thing is for me is that the, the subtlety of what you need to do. So enough to sit in business school and say, oh, yeah, leveraged companies can be dangerous. But the ability to recognize it in one of your own investments as it slowly rises and then take the decision to sell, that's a lot harder. And uh, my in-flight checklist is my, you know, the goal of that is to create circumstances which make it far more likely that I would, in a similar circumstance, sell the investment rather than hold on to it. Yeah, I, I saw one of your interviews where you mentioned, and it's, it's no secret that you're a great fan of checklists, and uh, you know you use them as a way to go back to your past mistakes so that you don't repeat them. Yeah. Um, so, was that yes. um, uh, somebody who's been enormously helpful to me? So you know, uh, William Green, who's the author of the Great Minds of Investing, uh, right. he and he helped me enormously with my book. Uh, we have we speak on a regular basis, and um, making huge mistakes is also part of the process. You know, it's not a fun or pleasant part of the process, but you know, so you have to learn from it, make the most of it, uh, and then get on with life. You know, and get on with creating a, a fantastic future. And the, the good news is that in spite of it having been ten percent of my portfolio, it wasn't fifty percent or a hundred percent of my portfolio. So. So it was a it was a substantial setback. I hope the biggest career setback that I have, but it wasn't fatal. And so what I need to do is is to learn from the mistakes, but also celebrate the fact that it wasn't fatal and understand that any every investor is going to have some of these of these in their portfolio as as they go through life. It's just part of the process, and that shouldn't take away our confidence to continue doing what we're doing. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, one thing which I, I probably would merge into a question which came from a friend, um, you know, that uh, since we're talking about the mistakes and checklists, uh, a friend of mine, Anil Silami, wanted to ask them, what are your three worst mistakes? And I think we know one right now. But uh, <laughs> what about the, two, <laughs> the other two mistakes and what points they added to your checklist, if you can discuss those? Uh, you know, uh, a long time ago, an investment in a company called Laboratory Corporation of America, which, uh, funnily enough, you know, similar circumstances, uh, they, it was a merger of two um, uh, biomedical laboratories in an industry where having scale was the right thing. And, and one laboratory had purchased the number one in the industry, had bought number two, used debt to do it. And uh, then industry conditions turned sour. They, um, they had a, a technical default on one of their loans and the share price went from the $8 a share where I bought it, $2 a share or less. And I, I was in so much pain that I just decided to sell the damn thing. Uh, and the difference between that and Horsehead was that 
one of the major shareholders in this company was um, Hoffman de Roche, the Swiss uh, and the Swiss um, pharmaceutical company here in Switzerland. And they were not going to let the company go bust. And so they worked with banks to restructure the debt, what ought to have happened with Horsehead. Uh, and um, in the case of Laboratory Corporation of America, if I had done absolutely nothing and just held on to my shares at $8 a share, even though it had dropped to $25 to, to $2 a share, I would have ended up making more than 10 times my money. It would have been an enormously successful investment for me. And so if you have the right sponsor shareholders, uh, then you know even if you've gotten into hot water with too much debt and bad business conditions, you can end up doing just fine, but you need to have those very, very strong um, uh, and deep-pocketed uh, partner shareholders in order to do that. So uh, that was that was one particularly painful mistake because I missed out an enormous upside. Um, you know, the the third one that I would give is, uh, which is I think written up a little bit in my book. This company, um, EVCI, uh, Education Video Educational Video Conferencing Inc., which was the owner of some for-profit colleges in the United States. And um, you know, uh, the 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 big lesson there was that in small cap companies, it's worthwhile to pay attention to the circumstances of the management. And to if the management are going through some particular life-changing circumstances, in this case, one of them was going through a very bitter and unpleasant divorce, that may affect your um, their ability to run the business properly, which it certainly did. And, and I should have taken that um, signal, but didn't. Can you tell me one thing? So, in that previous case, uh, what stopped you from? Revaluating was it the loss that you took in that position that stopped you from revaluating that as an investment option? I mean, it went from eight dollar to two dollars, but then it might have uh, given you again options of getting in again in the business. You know, I, I uh, Charlie Munger has said that it's hard enough to invest in a good business once, and and you you make it inordinately harder to invest in a good business twice. So yeah, it's true that I could have. Purchased more shares at two dollars, four dollars, eight dollars, sixteen dollars, on and on, all the way up to the ten x that it did or more on on that investment. But just emotionally, very very hard when I'd been through what I'd been through to go purchase those shares. In at least in my case, and I think um, and I didn't at the end of the day. And the right thing to have done would have just been to just leave it alone, you know. It was a period, it was a two or three month difficult period for the company, but, but they had strong backing from Hoffman LaRoche. And, uh, you know, with with Hoffman LaRoche as a shareholder, the banks and the creditors weren't going to do a horse head on the company, and I just had to stick with it. So, uh, Guy, uh, this brings to uh, one of our questions, like uh, about building positions. So you said that you will buy it at $2 and then later at $4, $6. So do you normally average up and do you think this is a powerful concept? And one more thing is you get a well-managed company and decently valued and it's a more building mode. In such cases, do you buy everything in one single shot? Because the reason why I'm asking this question is in your book, you said that you just place the order after market hours. You just call your broker the previous night and you just place the order in one go. Or... Uh, uh, in case of uh, companies which are evolving or uh, 
to be future great businesses do, do you take token positions and then deploy over a period of time basically do you believe in the concept of averaging up and uh, how do you build your positions in your fund i think it, i think that um that it's often a um you don't know what it's like to own the stock until you own it so you can do all the research you like but it's only when i own it that it, over a period of months that i really understand it so it's happened to me many times where I buy a very small position in a company uh, and then it just never develops into a bigger position because there are all sorts of things that I only started re start realizing and understanding about the business once I own it. So, um, But that said, I think that there's an enormous danger to averaging down. I think there are people in Horsehead who average down. Obviously, if the company is going to zero, the last thing you want to do is to average down. I think, and, and, and I think there's an enormous amount of, I'm, I'm not somebody, and this is really, it's not because I, it's not optimal from an investing standpoint. I don't know whether it's optimal or not from an investment standpoint, but from a psychological standpoint, I want to buy it and then own it. Not that I have to do it in one shot, uh, but I, I basically, over a six month period, I want to buy my position. Uh, you know, which is likely to be either two percent or ideally targeting five percent, and then I'm done. And I think a lot of the time I'll look at it, and obviously we all want to get the bottom tick. We don't all want to buy it at its cheapest. But what I will do, and again, this is a way of psychologically managing myself, I'll buy half of what I think I want to buy. If I get past the sort of initial um, uh, sort of position, or just what is it like to own this thing, and then I will buy half at the price that I see right now. And then, you know, if I'm lucky, the price will go down and I'll buy the other half. Or if I'm unlikely, the price will go up and I'll say, okay, I, you know, I, it hasn't gone up too much off my purchase price. I'll just buy the rest of the position. But, you know, trying to, we, we get into issues of market timing. And at some point, you just have to say, do I want to own this or not? And if I want to own at this price, I want to own at this price, I buy it at this price and be done with it. Makes sense, makes sense. Uh, guys, just, um, you know, on, since we are the topic of uh, buying companies and valuations and all this stuff, I just want to ask you one question. Is there a point, let's say you have bought the company cheap uh, and you have figured out it's a great company, is there a point if your thesis is not getting challenged and intrinsic value as per you is growing as you expected it to grow, um, will price make you sell a company ever? Deliver reaches. You know, I I think that um, we're we're back to the elephant idea that each each investment, each business is so different that the appropriate way to interact with them, you know, the answer to you know one answer for one company, a different answer for a different company. I think one of the key simple things to bear in mind is. Have I bought a great business at a reasonable price? In which case, you probably never want to sell. And, you know, for example, I regret selling my shares of Crizzle at the time that I sold them. Um, or have I bought an okay company at a great price? In which case, that I should be much more trigger happy. And um, if it's a truly great business, uh, we should probably never let go. So if it's not a great business, but it was just crazily cheap. Warren has talked about how he acquired uh, Horsehead Holdings, uh, he said that uh, he bought it because it was a net-net. He read about it in Forbes. He bought about it because it was net-net. You know, that was a good reason to buy it. And to make the transition from saying, this is actually worth holding on to because it's actually a better business was was a, was a, a conclusion that was not 
right thing to do in that case. So that was a case where uh, the right thing to do would have been to be trigger happy. You've bought it as a net net. You've gotten a double or a quadruple out of it, and you sell it. On the other hand, if we take um, Crizzle, I have I, I had lots of evidence that it was a phenomenal business, and uh, it was very very dumb of me to want to sell that one as early as I did. And um, I partly have myself to blame for having listened to a very very smart Indian investment banker from Bombay who um, had his own interests for convincing me to sell, allowed him to talk me into it, and I really wish he hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, Guy, I um, uh, just threw a couple of very small questions. Um, first of all, we are hoping that your publishers agree to book on Indian scenarios. Um, we, are really willing, we are really eager to have that book. Um, you have been, uh, you know, very involved in many groups like Lattice Work, ValueX, and you know. So, um, is a, a set of people and uh, an ecosystem like that has been very powerful, at least in my investing also. Does that help you uh, in the investment process per se, in times of selection also, and then in terms of uh, you know rubbing off your ideas with people? What's what's the key benefit of such group which you have? You know, so uh, we're coming up to ValueX um, uh, in uh, in Zurich this time around, and you know we have we have uh, a couple of Indian people who come regularly. Uh, uh, so we we attract we, uh, ValueX has attracted people from Japan, from Korea, from India, from the west coast of the United States. It's it's really wonderful, actually. I I can't tell you that my investing has improved because of ValueX. I can't I can't draw a direct connection. The same way that I can't draw the direct connection between me and having lunch with Warren Buffett and perhaps having improved investing. But, you know, I, I think that uh, the guy whose books I haven't read for a while that I would urge, I mean, I hope they're published in India. And if not, you guys should get them published in India. The books by Napoleon Hill. And he talks about creating mastermind groups. And uh, in a certain way, yeah, ValueX is a kind of a mastermind group. And I'm trying to build an ecosystem around me. In a certain way, world is changing. So Jeff Bezos says, uh, focus on the things that are not changing in a changing world. And you know, one of the things that doesn't change is that getting around the right people and having the right relationships is likely to bode well for a for a good future. So, uh, you know, uh, what I I would urge your listeners to do is, you know, I, I'd like to have been invited to the Buffett group I used to meet. I don't think meets anymore. Uh, but obviously, I wasn't invited to that. And the answer is to say, well, how about I create my own mastermind group? And I, I really believe, I mean, here's, here's an exciting thought, Krishna, Puneet, and Navid, is that uh, in, so, so you take some of your listeners sitting somewhere, maybe not even in Delhi or Bombay, in a, in a in regional part of India, or maybe outside of India, but not in the center of the world, maybe somewhere in, you know, in the, in the, in the, um, uh, in a region in Thailand or in Indonesia, but if if you have the English language and you have a few of these tools, I really think that you know future Warren Buffetts may may well not arise in places like Zurich and New York and London and Los Angeles, but may arise from some of the most remote, unexpected regions because there were people who fanatically who understood the principles and fanatically worked on them. 
such that their geographical distance from the centers was no longer a disadvantage. And I think that, uh, you know, this, the real key is, is for each of our listen, your listeners to look around their world, look around, you know, so look around your world and see who's somebody that, you know, if you're the average of the six people that you spend time with, you know, who, who's yeah. one extra person that you want to spend a little bit more time with? Who's one extra person that you actually don't need in your life? And, you know, it's not that one decision, uh, that one adding one extra person, removing one person that's going to make the difference. But if you do that over a period of 20 years, you will come out at the end of 20 years with some extraordinary results, which are very, very different to the average of humanity. And I think that that is equally possible when you're in, you know, you don't have to be in Zurich or New York to do that. And uh, and in a certain sense, that was what that's what I'm practicing with with Value X. But I'm also practicing it with um, you know I, I send holiday cards out every year, and between us, you know, it, it, the, as I identify great people in my life, I add them to my holiday card list, and as I identify people on my holiday card list who perhaps aren't the greatest people on the planet. Uh, then I then I then I will think about removing them from the holiday card list. So I'm kind of trying on multiple levels, not just in a group like Lattice Work, which is six of us, uh, or, you yeah. know, less people you can count on one hand, or Value X, which is less than a hundred. In all sorts of ways, I'm trying to territory around me to maximize for success. And I would be curious if your listeners just one person you don't need in your life. And that doesn't mean that you have to walk up to that person and say, I don't want you in my life or something like that. <laughs> Quietly take a little bit more time to respond to them, for example, or not send them a holiday card or not add their number to your speed dial. And more of in your life and add them to your speed dial and just make it a little bit easier to be in touch with them. I think extraordinary results can happen. It's it's those small moves, you know, uh, we, we kind of, you know, so Edmund Hillary climbed Everest with Tenzing Norgay, uh, and we kind of think of that big act. We don't think of the number of times he sat and tied his shoelaces a certain way to make sure they didn't get undone, or the ways in which he selected his clothing. It's the successes in all those very, very small and minor decisions that people make on a daily basis that build up to a much more powerful reality. Right, completely agree, Guy, and uh, some really valuable lessons for the listener. So uh, thanks a lot, Guy. I would really, I really had a great time, and I'm sure Krishna and I will enjoy it too. Uh, I hope the listeners will take a large amount of wisdom from this uh, interview. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thanks, Guy. Thanks, Sir. Just for thanks me to tell you, I feel like I'm in. Uh, first of all, I, as you know, I love India. Little secret. It's not such a secret, but who's Mexican who loves spicy food has confided in me that she likes Indian food more than Mexican food because Indian food is more uh, varied than Mexican food. Uh, but I feel, I mean, you know, I feel like I'm amongst friends because I know that we're all seekers of wisdom. So it's a real pleasure to do this. And, you know, I learn as I do this. So you're, you're with a fellow student, you know, the teacher, we're all students together trying to get wiser. Absolutely. And next time you are in India, uh, I will make sure that you get a large amount of varieties of foods to eat. So <laughs> Thank you. I love Indian foods. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, I'll see you in Omaha this year, man. Thank you so much, guys. Before I go, sorry, is that I would love for the publisher to publish the book in uh, in India, and I can't make them do it. 
but um, uh, you know, in email afterwards, I can give you a link to the publisher's website. And if you, you know, and the more people they have from India asking for the book to be published in India, the more likely and sooner they are to do it. So, you know, it's a kind of like we'll we'll get a. I mean, I don't want to inundate the the publisher with emails, but probably there's a. I'll find a comment section of the website where if people want the book in in an Indian version, they can go there, and hopefully that will help get the Indian version out. I'm pretty sure the sheer size of your fan base here will make sure that they publish this. <laughs> Publishers are aware of that. They need to. They need to hear from 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 that sort of group of potential buyers. Know that it's real, basically. Right. Right. Perfect. Perfect. Hey. Thanks a lot, guys, and uh, I will definitely see you this time tomorrow. Yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.